When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, after numerous requests, an uncountably large number on the internet and on the Twitters, I have a guest back. Seth Partnow from The Athletic, the one and only. Seth, people were tired of me talking to myself. I was tired of me talking to myself, so thanks for coming on. Sure. Uh, so uncounted requests means like two or three? It was more than that, but. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, everyone. It was slightly more than that. Yeah. Okay. So, but I think I'm trying to figure this out. Is this technically the first time you've been on this show? I can't even, I, I have no ability to remember back into the past anymore. I don't know because I feel like we've been on so many, many different podcasts cast together right. in various uh, including the one and only episode of 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 a pod of of, of of quote my podcast back 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 in the days of yore, is that in the Smithsonian that one episode? I don't know. That was a good episode. That was a good episode. Yeah, we had they, an interesting conversation. We did have a very interesting conversation, and and what people don't know about that is the technical difficulties we fought through. Um, <laughs> I think it really brought us closer together. I think so. So you have. A, you made a big announcement this week uh, about a book that you're working on that's coming out that I think a lot of people who are into you know basketball analysis, thinking of the game more deeply, uh, they're very excited about. Can you talk just at a high level what what we can look forward to with this new Seth Partnow tome? Uh, well, people looking forward to, to it coming out. Um... I have to write it first. So Small, minor detail. Yeah. Minor, minor detail. Um, so I, I think I, I think um, um, you know I, I can't name it thinking basketball because that's already taken. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's certainly if if one wants to talk about uh, the kinds of things that it's going to be about, I think that that's the, is, is thinking about basketball uh, deeply. It's going to be something of an anthology. There's been dozens of books written this way uh, about baseball in the sabermetric era. era. Um, a little bit of kind of a statistical primer. Um, I don't think there's actually any anything out there that's like, hey, what does all this stuff mean? And hopefully I can do that in a in – a, uh, um, interesting and readable way, but also you know, just topics around things we've learned about basketball, where it's been, where it's going. Um, and I'm most interested in, in, in doing the research for the things I think might be coming in the future. Mm, um, yeah. Cause that gives me uh, complete license to be hilariously wrong. <laughs> and uh, in, in thinking about this book, I actually owe a fair amount to you when I was approached by the publisher, uh, Triumph Books, um, much earlier this year, um, I was like, oh, book sounds nice. Nice. What the heck should I write about? Um, you gave me some advice that I think was very helpful, which is 
uh, not to be afraid of, of, I think you called it my back catalog, um, in terms of I've, I, both of us have done a whole lot of research and writing on a lot of topics. And so there are things that we kind of have known intimately and covered in some detail, but, um, the broader range of our audience is probably not minutely familiar with everything we've done. So, um, kind of not, I don't want to say collating that, but bringing a lot of that, that, that kind of research and thinking together, um, into a coherent whole that, uh, kind of describes a vision of NBA basketball, I guess. Um, yeah. Putting it in one place is tremendously yeah. helpful. Um, and tie, tying one thing to the next, because it's, I think it's, if there's one thing that, uh, I, I think we both agree on to, to a great deal, it's how kind of one thing leads to the next, leads to the next. Uh, and a lot of the mistakes that are kind of made, um, in, in kind of, uh, a piecemeal analysis is kind of forgetting that, you know, the end of a, of an instance of whatever is not the end. It's also the start of the next thing. And, and, and that kind of transition between the two matters. And so fitting pieces into the whole, um, is as important as, as the pieces themselves. So the thing you wrote about, I guess it came out today, I think, um, in the, at the athletic, in the athletic, what's on the, the athletic, on the athletic. It's very confusing for me because when I was growing up, something was in a newspaper and then I feel like at a certain point it was at a website. But now I, when I open the app in the morning, it's in the app, right? It's on the app, on the app. Okay. On the app. Yeah. I, I got to keep up with the times you'd think I, having designed sure. apps before I would know this. <laughs> um, but anyway, you were writing about uh, sort of the role players in the series and for the Lakers and evaluating their contributions in a small sample. It actually reminded me a little bit of a topic that I hit on in Thinking Basketball, where there are instances, the 2003 Spurs are the team that I use, where you have guys who from one night to the next contribute, but the overall averages look underwhelming. And so when someone goes back and looks at the team from a longer lens in the past, they say, oh, this team had like one or two players and then a bunch of guys doing nothing. But it was the ability to get certain contributions, whether it's on defense, shooting, playmaking, um, whatever, from night to night that kind of helps prop up that supporting cast. And I'm going to try out a thought for you. That it just occurred to me for the first time. Perfect. That's what you're here for. Now, yeah. Now we're getting so. There. So this is this is this is sort of teasing something that uh, we have we've had planned for the for after the season at the athletic, which is I'm um, going to be you know doing uh, tiering basically the top 125 players or so in the NBA, uh, and part of that is based on some research that was first done by Kevin Pelton, and I've I've kind of recreated and 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 duplicated and and confirmed. Uh, there's, there is not a replicability, uh, crisis in, in this area, but that, um, uh, player production, however you want to say it is nonlinear in, in, in so far as, uh, okay. A player who's worth one win. Okay. That's worth a win. A player who's worth two wins. Okay. is worth twice as much. Once you get up around the four win area in terms of winning a championship, each additional win is worth more. So uh, a mm. player who win who is responsible for six wins, however you figure it, uh, is more valuable than a player who does four than the guy who does four than two, and even more so as we kind of yes. move up the ladder. Yes, this is um, this. Yes, this is this was in 
thinking basketball as well, this idea of the portability curve. Yes. Right. So keep going. This is definitely so, uh, up my alley. So I, I'm thinking that even though, like you're talking about, the average across these games of these players is minimal, the fact that in any individual game, one guy is going to have a large contribution in that game uh, might operate on a similar principle mm. in that, in that you know, okay, if you have five guys all being pretty good, that gets you one place, but you, you're probably better if four guys are a little bit lower and and the fifth guy is much higher um so that i mean if you're whatever production metric you're using that might sum to the same thing but the the overall effect is probably better when you have the one guy and everyone else and so having that in the lakers standpoint obviously you have two guys who are going to be very productive almost night to night um and then but having that third guy who can be a different guy every night also being very productive uh, is maybe better off for them than having, you know, four guys who are kind of at a decent but not super contributory baseline. I've always been fascinated with this kind of the difference between the average of something in basketball and the actual distribution, like the range of it. Is it really high variance? Is it consistent? And for me, this goes back, I think it was about 10 years ago, Neil Payne, when he used to have the basketball reference blog. You remember that? Yeah, uh, he he tried to look at the differences in high end players. We're talking about role players, but he looked at high end players and he said, well, a guy like LeBron's really consistent and that may help a certain type of, you know, quality team. I think he compared him to Kobe, who had sort of a higher variance in whatever metric he was looking at. And he's saying, like, if your team is a little weaker in general, you want these these higher variance guys who can hit these home runs basically because if your team is weaker and you're trying to upset someone you're more this was this was what he laid out you're more likely to have six you know um success in that upset with a star that can get you to huge heights it kind of plugs back into something you said at the end of your article uh, about finals mvp where if you look at the performances in wins. You only need four wins in a seven-game series. You can have three right. duds, right? So it's that kind of thing, um, but you're applying it here to role players and it might have a different application. Because across a season, you're kind of dealing with aggregates and like, okay, you know, 30, 35 marginal points is worth a win across, it, you know, an 82-game schedule, but especially in the playoffs, um, there's some, you know, some pretty strong inflection points. You're not there, there's less uh, less time to get them tomorrow, if you, you know, if 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 one of these performances swings a game in a series. Um, so uh, I do think there's something to that, especially with respect to the to the role players uh, in a situation where uh, teams are are reasonably even. And this this has been. Not unlike the Western Conference Finals, I think this has been a reasonably closely contested series, um, where um, I think the difference can almost be that, uh, like the Lakers, other dudes are are shooting the ball much better than the than the, the Heat's guys. Now, some of that is the quality of looks, but like the you know shot quality, it, it, you know, tells more over longer term than the shorter term. So, um, so I think that's a way of, of saying that 
because they're getting these night-to-night performances from Alex Caruso, from Rajon Rondo, from KCP in the three wins. And, and Markeith Morris was a reason why the, the game three was close. Um, I, I think that's a big part of why they're winning the series. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, intuitively, it's an interesting thing because on one hand, you would think if you've got stars you want consistency from the players around you. Uh, we can maybe get into home home court versus playing on the road research. Uh, I've done some of this in the past. I don't know if you've looked into this with like role players versus stars. But uh, that aside, the idea that if you're a good team, you can get sort of for, for you know lack of a better way to think about it in basketball, a third star on any given night or a fourth star on any given night from whoever it may be, KCP, Rondo, Dwight Howard. Uh, I don't think he's had a game like this, but Kuzma maybe, you know, he could come in, hit a bunch of shots, add 20 or 25 points. This seems to me that, especially the way the playoffs are laid out, you're going to get slightly more value from those kinds of role players, especially if you have a an army of them to choose from. And you allude to this in your piece about, Frank Vogel trying to press the right buttons here uh, and throughout the playoffs. But it seems to me that, at least in theory, that's going to give you more value than whatever um, averaging metrics, as good as they might be, will spit out because they can't account for that kind of variance in the distribution. Yeah, I think I, I think that's what that 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 we maybe is possible. Or if we're thinking this, um, put the two of us together, and that's always a, <laughs> <laughs> that's always in play. But yeah, I think there's something to that. And um, and I'm wondering, like it used to be, like you needed a quote a big three, and wondering how how possible as kind of the general uh ability of of front offices has risen which i think is is broadly accurate over the last 20 years it's probably a little harder to put together a big three just in terms of of uh you need you need some kind of 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 you know freakishness like you know steph curry signing a very below market contract right before a massive cap spike uh and the second round pick become an all-star uh at the same time uh to kind of to to be able to put that that kind of talent together um under the uh, under the league rules, so I, I do think that it might be more um, okay. You've got your one or two main guys who you, who you can reasonably count on every night, but then having those other guys like we've been talking about who can who can who can be that 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 you know third leg um, in on any given night. Um, and I don't. I, it's an interesting question actually whether or not there there is anything to needing three. What, like if that's if there's any sort of point of inflection in terms of game to game performance where, OK, if you have one guy who plays great, that probably gets you somewhere. If you have zero guys who, who play who play really well, you probably lose. If you have one that does something for you, if you have two that does more, if you have three, is that like where is the where is the line of demarcation for when it becomes like you probably win if you get this? Yeah, I, I actually just using a basic uh, box metric years ago looked at the correlation between better and better individual games and winning. And there's a pretty healthy correlation there. Like it makes sense, right? In the NBA, if you have some huge game like Jimmy Butler had the other night, um, there are enough parts in play where it certainly could be a loss, but 
almost it's like almost becomes independent of team quality. If you have a phenomenal individual game, you're more likely to win than not. I want to I want to just pause there for a second. I think it, it if if this we're recording on 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 Friday before uh, game five, if the series ends tonight, as we I think we both suspect it will. Um, I'm a little worried that 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 Jimmy Butler performance will kind of get lost. Um, that's one of the great finals, individual finals performances of the last however many years. It was phenomenal. And 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 just just it, like stepping back from it for 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 a moment, just like you know that that I mean I, I wrote about it the other day, just in terms of of the stratosphere of of the control he had over that game is in a range that um, has been reached by LeBron and that's it in the last eight years. Mm. So, <laughs> so, you know, and I just, I just wanted to, to, to put a pin in that and, 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 or, 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 or drop a marker there, I guess, put a pin is the other thing. Um, <laughs> um, before, before we, before we move on, but just, I, like I, you know, the, it's sometimes sad that these like great performances and and teams just kind of like vanish. Like, when was the last time you thought about the uh, thirteen fourteen Pacers? Well, every time I have to think about what happened to Roy Hibbert, that's uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Even more so yeah. than my my Paul George adoration over the years. Yeah, um, I should say we keep alluding to we've alluded to the article that came out today that you wrote. We've alluded to your Jimmy Butler piece. The Athletic is the sponsor. Of this podcast and right now there's a limited time incredible offer i have for you it's a dollar a month for the first six months head over to theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod so you can support the show theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod sign up there you get the first what let's do some math the first six months for six dollars and you can read you get everything seth wrote right uh, everything from me, everything from John Hollinger, everything from uh, our, our wonderful group of beat writers. Um, Derek Bodner, uh, Jared Weiss, Derek, all those guys are fantastic. Uh, all, yeah. all, 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 the, all those folks. Um, um, across sports, I'm, I think we have about the best soccer and hockey coverage out there. Um, uh, um, if, if you're a big football guy, do uh, uh, really doing it doing a nice job there um you know this is covering what is is kind of one of the weirdest seasons that anyone has seen and it's and 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 you know you know that football is experiencing that kind of in real time even as as you know basketball and, and hockey and baseball have somewhat navigated playing in this weird environment football is is now anyway anyway um, i yeah yeah so um, theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod um thanks for the assist on that I'm, I'm, i always forget to do that during the show let let's come back to what we were just saying though because i think if i can take a step back i think what we're really getting at here is sort of small sample evaluations like we have tried to prop up uh in the best way we can over the years going all the way back to the 90s with uh, pioneers like John, the aforementioned John Hollinger and Dean Oliver, people like this. We've tried to say, okay, how can we evaluate basketball players? Here's a season of data. Here's a, a playoffs worth of data. Uh, can we reduce these things to single numbers or, or kind of 
put people on a level playing field and wrap our head around this. And I think what we're really getting at here is how do you confidently make evaluations in really small samples, whether it's a game or even a series, a five or six game series? What does it look like? I've always had this question about finals MVP. Like, what does it look like to go into the series and say, yeah, this player was on level, you know, nine and the next closest player was on level six. So the the interesting part you said about you said there, the most interesting part of your question was be caught. How confident can you be? And I feel like that's where we fall down more than than almost the evaluation itself is um is we're looking for for too high a too high a degree of confidence almost like this is there's there's a lot of unless you're going to really like you know rewatch all the games four times and take copious notes and 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 you know go to the tracking data and everything else um don't mock me you know, Seth I that by would I wouldn't think of it <laughs> Um, uh, continue. Um, no, but how certain can you be? And in a reasonable time frame, what's your what's your best estimation? And I think that's what a lot of these 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 the metrics, whether it's a it's a it's a one number metric or kind of a suite of indicators that that you like to use. I think a lot of that is is really just you know, helping you reduce the complexity in your mind somewhat. So you have a starting point and then, okay, here's kind of broadly what I think happening happened. What else happened that might shift my evaluation up or down on, on each of these individuals? Um, and so, yeah, you can have your, what, whatever, whatever you think of, of what Anthony Davis did from a statistical standpoint in game four, but then he guarded Jimmy Butler for, you know, 50 some percent of Jimmy Butler's time on the floor. And um, especially in the second half, once they started going under on screens like that, very much limited Miami's entire offense. Um, and is that it, how much of that credit goes to Anthony Davis? Some a great deal. But the fact that he could stay in front of 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 Butler and not have to switch off was a pretty big key in the game. And that doesn't really show up anywhere in a stat attributed to any one player but that's something that makes you at least in my mind that's the kind of thing that you get watching the game that makes you think okay whatever my suite of numbers says says this and then he gets a plus plus for this other thing that was a pretty big key to the game well there i see i think there are competing forces here which is what makes it so fascinating to me it feels like it's easier to look at a single basketball play and say oh he did that really well or he did that really poorly like, we can wrap our head around that. We don't need to deal with reducing things to one number or whatever. We can just look at the play. Uh, he made a shot. He made a great pass. Or if it's defense, like, what more can you do on this defensive possession than lock up, go through the screen, rotate, lock up the player, contest, turn and rebound? And yet, as we start to add more of those together, at a certain point, we're we're stuck going like, well, I don't know if we have enough of them to actually say how valuable each of these things are, right? Like there's certainty in identifying these individual instances, one, two, three, four plays, 10 plays or whatever, maybe. But then you get in this middle range where you're not really certain. You, you know what you just saw, but you're not really certain 
at how valuable it is. That That's sort of the fascinating tension that I see in looking at it. Yeah, and, and just you describing this, this, it reminds me a lot of, uh, I've been talking with a lot of people about kind of scouting uh, technique, I guess, you know, in, in anticipation of moving towards, you know, uh, draft coverage because, you know, Russ never sleeps. And uh, one of the things people have been talking about a lot is feel. And it's one of those things that you just watch clips on a player you don't really get because a lot of that is seeing the progression of mm, kind of yep. learning throughout a game. So I almost so I like I almost recoiled when you said you can watch one play and oh he did that right. It's like, well, what is it what is he reacting to? You know, okay, if it's the first play of the game, it's whatever, but okay, this is the third time they've run that action. He he defended it this way that the first time and how has he adjusted or has he um that's almost as as big a factor as but now look just look how much complexity I've just added there. Um so even your your example of like looking at one play, just picking that one play as the starting end points, like takes you away from what is actually, you know, going on in terms of the decisions the player is actually making. Right. Yeah. Does that make any sense at all? No, that makes total sense. Or- <laughs> I, I don't I don't think it competes with what I was saying. I didn't have in my mind that you wouldn't have that information. Um, I was just thinking, like, even if you're in the third quarter and, you know, you've had these two adjustments and the team is trying to do this. And the player yeah. then then actually executes that like as well as the coach would want. Um, we could play a mind game and say, you know, in some thought experiment, there's no other player in the NBA that we think could execute that as well. It's still very hard for us to say what that is worth in a single play. You referenced um, in your latest piece, Jacob Goldstein's PIPM at a single game level, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean... It's hard for me to even understand what that means in a sense. Uh, I, I've certainly looked at really small filters with his stuff, and I think he regresses a lot in small filters, meaning he, sh- he shrinks the numbers closer to zero. But like we're so used to thinking about and have kind of learned through all this research, all these studies, everything that's gone on in the so-called analytics movement of the last 20, 25 years, we, we can now kind of intuit, okay, you're not going to put a basketball player on an NBA team and they're going to add 50 wins. We can we can intuit that. But what does it mean at the play level and then how does that affect our ability to assess, you know, not just like how well someone actually played in a game from a remotely reasonable qualitative standpoint or quantitative standpoint, but when we get to these, you know, massive arguments about like finals MVPs, um what was the actual value of what this guy did in, in a four or five game series? I mean, it, it, this this turns on as much on the definition of the word value as anything else, doesn't it? Because uh, like what it, it it's a little bit of reasoning from first principles, right? The, the the goal is to to win the championship. How do you win the championship? You win four games. So then that, that necessarily, you know, colors the um and I, I, and I don't have a good answer for, for, for how, but it, 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 um, you know, doing, you know, having this, a ludicrous performance in a blowout, you're probably, um, there's probably some overage there, right? <laughs> you're pro- there's probably some, like the, if, if you score, you know, 50 in a, in a, in a 27 point win, do you, do you really get like how many of those 50 should actually count? 
Yeah. When we're, when we're talking, like, obviously that's a tremendous, so let's, let's call it 49 because, you know, 50 <laughs> is a round number and people lose their minds. But say you, get, you have 49 and you win a game, you win by 25. How much better was your game than if you'd have scored 41 in terms of driving towards winning a championship? I'd probably, there's probably not any difference there. Well, so I keep going. No. So, and I don't, I don't know where that leaves us. I, I, it, it, cause a lot of, when you get, when you get down to like this level of granularity, it almost, be, you almost, it almost becomes like art criticism rather than statistical analysis. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, we need to kind of recognize that, that it, it becomes very subjective, very fast. Well, I, I don't think it's totally trivial to, maybe that's your point to clarify at the least what we're talking about. Like, I'm a big proponent, I've said it before, of a playoff MVP versus a finals MVP, but I'm not even sure MVP is really the right term for me. I think I'm more um, thinking of like a playoff MOP, a most outstanding player, to use the NCAA terminology, sure. right? I, I think that's at least how I intuit those kinds of things. And to your point, there's there's no right or wrong way, but I think we constantly talk past each other even if yeah. we can, even if we can agree that our analysis is like really spot on, because it does become a different thing the way the rules are laid out to say who's the MVP versus the MOP is an extreme example. I've advocated for a, a playoff MVP and said you probably like hockey. I think has had this as well. Like you could probably certainly in soccer you could probably find instances of people that don't make the final who over the course of like, uh, how many playoff games did Jokic play? He played 19. So you could probably find somebody who played 19 playoff games, and you could muster up an argument that they were the best player in the postseason and deserving of being acknowledged as the best player in the postseason if we went in that route. But I think it would be hard to then argue he was the most valuable if you've got some other guy who does the things on a championship team that keeps getting him to the next round if they're reasonably close uh, in performance. So, you know, I, I do think it is worth pointing out at least um, what we're trying to talk about because then it's still a difficult task to parse. Yeah. It's still, it's crazy to me. Like, as uh, we, we think of Denver as having this great playoff run and they lost more games than they won in the playoffs. And we're outscored, I think, over the. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know. But at the same time, I still think they had a very successful playoffs. So, like, <laughs> they, they finished under 500 in the playoffs, but I think they, they performed very well. I mean, some of that is the fact that I think that the Western Conference Finals were a subjectively a closer series than 4-1. to one. Yes, yes, but, yes, yes. Um, but, again, art criticism. Uh, well, so let me put you on the spot here. Yeah. I have thought over the years, um, this isn't something I don't think I've talked about much lately, but way back in the day, we have this idea of like a team's net rating, it's point differential, it's SRS, which it tries to adjust for schedule or whatever. So you have some value at the end of the season. You say this team is neutral, this team's plus five, great teams like Golden State, the 96 Bulls, maybe they're plus 10, plus 12. I have always thought that those regular season indicators kind of give you a ballpark of a team's overall quality, but based on many of the things we're talking about, role players, distribution of stars. Uh, of course, a hot topic lately has been matchups and um, you know your flexibility in the playoffs. I've always thought that that is kind of fungible to a couple points either direction. 
so the, the the area I'm putting you on the spot here is, do you kind of see it the same way? Or do you think there are teams that legitimately could be, I don't know, 500 teams in the regular season and way, way better than that would indicate in the postseason and vice versa, where you have a team that looks uh, like a world beater in the regular season. I'm not thinking of any team that you used to be affiliated with here at all. Um, and then and then maybe they just don't have the same level of bite in the playoffs. How, how do you kind of see that um, stacking up, I guess, that signal as you think about a team? Denver makes me think about this because they look like a decent but not championship-level team in the regular season. And you could make the argument that they're probably better in the postseason, but I don't even know if that's the case. Like, I don't know how to kind of get out of that mold if you follow. Sure. So the first thing we have to acknowledge is like uh, until proven otherwise, I I think we have to treat this year's playoffs as a little bit too generous. Um, Just in terms of of, I mean, you've talked about it having, you know, it's not especially for, for young players. It's not the same season. It's it, it it's next season already for for whether it's it's you know Tyler, Tyler Hero or Jamal Murray. I mean, adding you know he says fourteen pounds of muscle between like the the shutdown and the playoffs, like pure muscle. Oh, I mean, I mean, he was he was visibly like stronger and more explosive. I think it was like he, he was he. I feel like the extra strength was a was a was a big deal yep. for for his performance in 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 the bubble and in playoffs. So, um, Michael Michael Porter if, Jr. as well, I think. Yeah. Had so I I think that's that's sort of one thing we just have to leave out there. So like a team that has that performed kind of much worse in like the in the campus environment than their regular season numbers would indicate. I don't think that necessarily says anything, makes any big pronouncements about that's that's just that's almost more like saying, yeah, they were really good last year, but not as good this year. And and yeah. same players, but we're not really sure why. And that happens all the time. You, you, you know, a team, you, you know, the, the the that that Hawks team basically ran, ran it back and just wasn't as good. Um, I guess I mean, they lost to Mark Harrell. And uh, but but still, um so that's the, I mean, that, that, that's one thing I do. Th- I, I, I don't think there's ever going to be a situation where a team is like a neutral net rating team in the regular season and then plays at like championship level sustainably in, in the postseason. I think the, the closest, I agree with you. So it sounds like we're on the same page. The, the, I think the closest team for me to ever kind of looking like that was probably the 95 Rockets. Well, but there's they're an example that's often used for something like this, and they made a massive trade midseason. So they they like, um, you know, in general, like like season long performance is a predictor, with the caveat that if you make a big change, it's not. So the two big examples of that are, you know, the O four Pistons and 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 those Rockets who you know made big trades mid midseason and and that kind of altered what their team was. Um, so the, so kind of a big chunk of their, of, of, of the sample that generated their, their net rating or SRS or whatever is, is out the window. Yeah. yeah. Now I, now I, so, but I don't disagree with you that there are teams that are, that, that there's, there's probably some, the spread is not that big, but I do agree that there are, there, there are definitely teams that based on their construction are going to be different 
in the playoffs in regular season. I think that this is going to become more of a thing too because I think playoff basketball, and we talked about this on on, uh, on Nerder last week, I think, is that playoff basketball is diverging more from regular season basketball than probably ever before. Yeah. No, I I, so, I buy that. Keep going. So that's one thing. And I, you could look at it a little bit. Like uh, the, the two kind of best teams in the NBA this year in the regular season were the Bucks and Lakers. And a big part of their kind of statistical profile was the degree to which both of them just pounded on the bottom 10 teams in the league. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say there were 50 something in one versus those teams. And uh, the Lakers had, I believe, one of the best net ratings of all time versus, you know, teams that are, um, you know, whatever, whatever games teams played this year that prorated to a 35 win pace or lower. Um, and, and the Bucks were similar. They, they had, two enormous like which which probably inflated their their season long net rating by by a little bit now was that predictive of postseason success well the lakers turned out fine and the bucks less so um but i do think that's that's an indicator that um you know how you did against cleveland this year doesn't say much about how you're going to perform in the second round of the playoffs yeah, I, it's interesting you you bring it up from that perspective. I had at some point a, a Patreon subscription article um, that looked at the performance of those teams against the top ten teams, and and what jumped out there is that Milwaukee at that point in time had this incredible like historic all time all time net rating, but their performance against the top teams, I believe the Lakers were first. And there might have been another team in front of the Bucs. And it wasn't that the Bucs looked problematic, but when you stack them up next to these other great all-time teams, they looked more like uh, another one of my teams in this sort of vein that we're talking about. They look more like the 90s Sonics than the 90s Bulls. Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I think, I mean, the way I've, I've kind of used, it tiered the league into three tiers, which is like 35 and below and 50 and above win teams. Uh, and that it seems to you know, at a rough approximation without getting in and, and fiddling with, no, this team was a good team this year. This team was a terrible team and, and having to fiddle around with that for every season um, that, that, that gives you a rough approximation. And this year's, this year's bucks like turned out to be solidly like upper tier, like in, in, in and amongst a lot of teams that like made finals and, 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 and won championships uh, in terms of their performance against the other top teams, but they weren't, they weren't that, you know, historical right. outlier type of plus 10, plus 12 team. Um, you know, the you want to talk about teams that that did that and did not win a title. The one that always comes to mind was uh, was um, Oklahoma City. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, the, the year Westbrook uh, got hurt in the first round of the play. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like that is one of the that, that is one of the the I think that's one of the. Hmm. It's hard with all those Warriors teams, but that's probably one of the ten best teams of the last decade, and 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 I think they would have won the title that year um, had had Westbrook not not gotten injured because they were they're one of the the bet in in that in that subset of sample against the other top ten teams they were just crushing that season, uh, and then you know first round of the playoffs and Pat Beverly does Pat Beverly things and <laughs> there we go. So we we did allude to it on that podcast last week, uh, the athletic show Nerder She Wrote, where I was mentioning um, 
Anthony Davis, defensive versatility. I, of course, did a video about him this week. And I continue to sort of, uh, plugging back into this conversation, I continue to think about these two extremes where, on one hand, if you're, you're going to have more matchups that you have to handle over the course of a four-series playoff run, do those players become more valuable? We can speak to offense, of course, but just even on defense, where if your key performers are guys that have this flexibility to take on different roles, play in different coverages, play in different schemes, how much more valuable is that than, to me, the opposite right now and the one I was really noodling on in preparing my top 10 video to end the season, which will, this is Friday, it'll come out in a couple days after this is over, but I get into, who's number 10? Yeah. That's one of the, <sighs> no, in, so the, the, the top nine are, yes, yes, for yes. Me, are, are pretty, are pretty easy. Yes. This is exactly what I had. I ran into this problem yeah. where, where yeah. 10 for me was actually, I looked at, I think 10 through 16, I had arguments and maybe it was 15. I had arguments for six or seven guys. Oh, this um, is going to come. Our, our lists are going to end up being so familiar. <laughs> so, so similar. Uh, we can we can share notes after the I don't want to spoil yeah. Um, yeah too much but yes that one of the challenges is I do this list and I block out the ranges but in this case there was an entire group that could be almost interchangeable from like ten to fifteen or ten to sixteen for me anyway um, one of those players is a defensive drop is coverage. Rudy Gobert is it, exactly and so this is yeah. well, this is what I was kind of working through where it's like. On one hand, I'm thinking the Anthony Davis and we can bam on a bio. Other players can go in this mold are becoming more valuable in the playoffs. <laughs> are there others that can go that? I mean, uh, well, Jonathan Draymond, Isaac, if, if, if he is. Yeah, Jonathan Isaac, Draymond Green historically. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, but it's of yeah. course we're talking about the elite of the elite. But the flip side, uh, and I have a graphic in the top 10 video that alludes to this, is if you are kind of primarily a drop coverage center. Um, we mentioned Roy Hibbert. Like, it's it's a similar idea. He might be a more extreme example. If you really excel in one defensive area or skill, and to some degree we've seen this with Dwight Howard and the Lakers, how likely are you to kind of be defanged at a certain point? And then what does that do to your overall kind of championship equity as a key defensive driver, if the system is built around you, but it's a rigid system. These are the kinds of things I'm thinking about. What, what are your thoughts? This is a tough one for me because especially around Gobert, the, 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 the conversation goes in weird places and he kind yes. of, he tends to get blamed for his team having a dearth of shot creation. Uh, and I think that I think, and then that's honestly one area why he is a more kind of, playoff durable player than this this model of Dwight Howard or Roy Hibbert like you, people forget I mean maybe I, mean, I don't want to do like the the, the, the snoring <laughs> the problem, emoji the problem no, yeah. but 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 uh no Roy Hibbert was a legitimately terrible offensive player like he was a, he was a bad finisher around the rim uh was not effective in pick and roll and 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 so the the problems there became almost as much that you're you're He's he's a liability offensively. Rudy, mm -hmm. Rudy yep. Gobert is not an offensive liability. Like good hands can roll, catch, finish, offensive rebound. Like he he's not a shot creator, but he's a guy who who requires attention and can't be schemed away from a from a. He, he he's not a guy who you can stick 
a small forward on and 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 think you're going to get away with that yeah you know whereas uh i think that that um roy herbert like sure we'll we'll guard him with uh with kent Bazemore or something like that and and what, what are you gonna do pull stop roy herbert um so uh, I, I think that's a big difference and and um I don't think Dwight is as much of an offensive liability at this point in his career, but he's also not no longer the defensive force that, you know, Pete Hibbert or current Gobert is. So he kind of falls in between, but I see your point. Um, but yeah, I think, does it limit you in certain ways? I don't know. I feel like the drop coverage discussion is a little bit reductive because where, where is that getting you beat and who is that getting you beat by? Is my question. I I think the the obvious answer, and I get your point. There's more nuance, but I think the obvious answer is if you've got a really good spread pick and roll structure with a guy who makes pull up threes, and probably to some degree you want volume shooters uh, around that as well. But that's where I see the primary weakness. If you've got at some point in the playoffs, it's hard to avoid really good offensive players like you get to the second the third round you're going to run into these guys and therefore when one of them is you know hey let's set a screen 30 feet from the hoop or 25 feet from the hoop and I want to spread you out Gobert's a great example I think where yes the conversation goes in really weird directions I've defended the fact uh, that in the past that he doesn't suddenly become some liability who can't stay on the court uh, that's not the point. The point is is that if you look at a guy like Gobert, who's got great mobility for his size historically, there's a huge difference between him coming up to touch a screen and be 20 feet away or 18 feet away and then handle an attacker into that space. And, you know, these situations we've seen in the past with Lillard, with Curry, maybe with Murray when he was really hot, and Mitchell on the other side of the court – more and more Trey Young is probably coming. Um, Luca likes to use more space like this. Like when you get out to 25 or 30 feet as a big and you have that extra dribble or two, I think that's the thing that makes a difference. You can even see it with Anthony Davis, who I think is more mobile than all of these guys. Like that extra step or so to the three point line is just the thing that a guard can use to actually get by you. And then, of course, the second they're getting by you, you're introducing more help into the scheme and the coverage. And that's what you're trying to avoid in the first place. Yeah. Um, are we over indexing on the warriors? Possibly keep going. <laughs> no, it's just like yeah, how much of, and this is, this is a, this is a Rudy Gobert discussion. This is a, uh, James Harden discussion. This is a, a Daryl Morey's general managership discussion. It's like, we're oh, they couldn't overcome, you know, one of the, you know, one of the four or five dynasties of the last, you know, 25, 30 years. One of the, one of the great collections of, of top end talent we're ever going to see in the NBA. They, they couldn't, he couldn't match up with that. Therefore, it's just like, okay, sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's the right way to approach it. If that's yeah, but, where you're going. No, but I, but I do think that that like the, this, 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 this stark terror of a guard coming off of a, of a, of a mid pick at 30 feet and destroying a team that is Steph and other good players around him. And that's the Warriors and that's it. Like, okay, for, for a couple games, maybe 
Lillard can do that. And like, you know, he, he won game one of the, or sealed game one of the first round series, uh, against, um, against the Lakers. But what, even before he got hurt, what did, uh, what did he do for the rest of that series? Well, yeah. So I would just flip it and say, like, I'm thinking about the, the Kemba Walker, Mark Gasol's of the world, right? Where it just seems to be something that is more common if you have guys that are really comfortable setting up in that space on the court and they're going to go to a pull-up three or try to get to the rim. Um, they're comfortable with the ball, so they're going to be the the primary shot creator for a team out of that kind of action. The Celtics, of course, run a ton of screens and staggered screens for Kemba. And then you get into a series where you start looking at where you can gain advantage points, and there are just stretches where it's like, okay, yeah, he's older now, but he's still an example of a very effective defender in shorter space. But having to ask Marc Gasol to take that extra step or two out on the perimeter, now we've got a defensive problem that we have to contain. I don't know if you completely buy that, but that's more about the framework that I'm thinking of it in. Yeah, I, I, we... I don't disagree in, in the, the part I disagree with is is we're so selective about which of these kind of micro situations. Oh, well, that's that. He's done. He can't do that. He's done. Um, and this is the, this is like the, the, the discussion of drop coverage in this year's playoffs has been that I think it's well, it, the guy hit two pull up threes this game. Just can't 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 win with them. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. Um that may be very uh, fair, I'm, and, and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm not saying I'm not saying you're doing that, but you are doing that a little. Um, so I, and, and you know, there's all kinds of of you know, yeah, there's there's, you know, there's not a player in the league that doesn't have, if you want to find some deficiencies, like, you know, uh, does LeBron have a habit at the end of game, the end of close game sure. games, to dribble out too much right, shot right, clock, right. and sure. is that you know, it's like. But I don't. And, but we've 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 chosen to not decide that's a fatal flaw. Yeah, I I I'm very sympathetic to the point you're making about automatically assuming something is a fatal flaw. I think where I go is what happens, and I'm not saying they're right to do it after two plays, but it seems to me that coaches will do it after five minutes or eight minutes or getting somewhat of a larger, maybe still not sufficient sample. What happens right. when the coach is the one who's like, okay, this just isn't working. It's just, it's giving up too many things that we want to contain. And therefore I'm going to start sort of structuring or navigating my defense around this because I don't want to give that team those shots. That's the shots that they want to get. Those are the places on the floor they want to get to. And therefore, now you go full circle back in your brain to like, if you've got Bam on a bio, if I mean, if you've got Giannis, whatever, you just say, okay, just adjust the coverage slightly, just come up higher, because uh, they're more comfortable and sort of a fleet of foot in those situations. No, I I don't think that there's there, there's, of course there's there's value in in being versatile in that area, but I think I think the the. I think there is a delta in defensive ability between Rudy Gobert and, and Bam Adebayo, and I don't think Bam's versatility makes up for that completely. And I think so. I think there's a danger, and and oh, he can he can do all these different things, yeah. But Bam has is not yet a top defense 
in his in his own. He's not a guy who he is on your team. You have a top ten defense. Rudy Gobert is. So in some situations, again, the versatility helps close that gap, but we don't want to just make it all about this one area where, you know, Rico Bear, you know, top two or three rim protectors in the league, top two or three rebounders in the league and a very effective offensive player. So, you know, and, and I don't want to turn this into a, like a Rudy versus Bam, you know, discourse because Bam has a lot of time to get there. Um, but I think those 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 improvements for Bam are going to come more on the offensive end than I think, you know, he's as a rim protector, he's probably, you know, he's because of size, he's unlikely to ever be elite in that area. I love your Rudy Gobert is a top 10 defense argument framing whatever and I, so i've said this on multiple podcasts and i'm gonna have to say it again because someone's gonna go look it up and see that they were 11th well, that's in gonna, this year i was gonna ask you and what you make it, of but that. but you go to but you you go to our friend ben falk's website and you look in non-garbage time and they were 10th sure 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 so even at number 10 i was just <laughs> so, more, i was just more so, gonna ask yeah. you what because i think that argument um i like that argument for historical purposes because i work so much on you know, like def- the the inflection points on defense have really big consequences for building teams, winning playoff series, and they're the thing that is the easiest to miss at a high level. We can talk about playmaking, passing, scheme, movement, all these other beautiful things, but just at like a high level, um, you know, Ben Wallace used to just be demonized as a basketball player, for instance. So I love that. But my question to you, and I have the same question to myself when I looked at it, is like, man, what happens when... You know, we know there are great defensive players who, if things start to really fall apart, you, you just can't be a top 10 defense by yourself. But what happens when you're like, oh, there's another year at 12, there's another year at 14, there's another year at 16. Um, it's one thing if there's just obviously no defensive coaching effort or talent around you. But, I mean, do you make anything of that, that they seem to be slipping a little? Um, whereas a, a couple years ago, they were just flat out number one, right? I, mean, I think that to some extent that's that is the to the team around him a little bit is it was not as good defensively this year um not having a for not having a any sort of um you know they they probably had one of the best backup center situations in the league last year when it's yeah. okay Derek favors you play the five now yeah so they they you know and and this year it's like uh Tony Bradley uh, Ed Davis Jawan Morgan um, so that they're, you know, the time he's off the floor is worse. And then also just kind of switching their team around to bring, um, you know, have, have, having the, the titular four be, uh, Boyan Bogdanovich. It's like, that's, right. you know, and, and Mike Conley is probably almost certainly not the defensive player he was earlier in his career. Um, and it's just you look at you look at their their lineup if they're if, when they are in their were in their preferred starting lineup before Bogdanovich got hurt, is there another player on the floor who's even a average defender? Uh, but you, you're just throwing Royce O'Neal out of the discussion, you mean? Oh no, it's, it's, no, no, yeah. So I yeah. mean, yeah, it, when you bring you, you know you bring and then and then Royce O'Neal, you get into that you get into that situation where you have a guy who is close to a passenger on offense. <laughs> the the Oklahoma City special can we <laughs> yeah I mean he, Ferguson he, I mean he's and... he, but he but I think he was he, 
I don't even have to look, but he might have been the lowest usage player in the league this year. Uh, I think that might be wrong. But he's but his his offensive role is stand in the corner, stay there, and that's fine. But that's that is not a that is not a really a plus factor on an offense. That's a get away with. Um, you know, that's a that's a Parker guy who can't field anymore at first base. Yeah, kind of, kind of situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think it, so. I think examining it in totality, and and you know, and you you also have to you have to note that you know it was noted during the year that that his kind of effort level and overall play wasn't as good as it has been in the past. So maybe that's a sign of slippage. Maybe that's you know just one of those things because there are ebbs and flows. I mean, there was. I mean, prior to the shutdown, there was some some obvious tension between you know Mitchell and and Gobert. Um, I don't remember Dave what Dufour you're talking I, about. Yeah, yeah. No, Dave, Dave Dufour and I were at at the game they played in Boston right before the shutdown, and we were just like throwing our hands in the air at the the number of times where Gobert would roll to the rim and be the only person in the paint and not get the ball, and so he you know expressed some frustration and commit a dumb foul on the other end on defense. It's like, okay, that's not great, but that's also human. Um, so I don't know where this is going, and I don't know why this has turned into it to me <laughs> not for the first time engaging in a full-throated defense of, of Rudy Gobert. but With a Rudy um, Gobert defender, the irony of that. Yeah. Um, so where are we going with this? So, I, I have I mean, no idea. No, 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 if, you know, if he's, he's at an age now where if he starts to, you know, next year they're 12th, it's like, mm, okay, he might just, is it the league has moved away from that being a valuable thing or is it he's 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 hit that he's hit the crest and is now on the backside of the wave which you know um intuitively probably matters more for defensive big guys than a lot of other positions because a little decline in kind of athleticism probably makes a bigger difference than it might be for a shooter yeah hmm all right, this is probably a good point to uh, to wrap up the podcast. Unless you have any other, unless you have any we're, other, topics. we're gonna we're gonna end we're gonna end on Rudy Gobert. I I don't I don't know what I don't know what we're doing anymore. Um, yeah, I, I mean, if there's anything else you want to talk about, we could do a post show. The Patreon subscribers like that. We could stick around and hit another topic or continue the uh, the Rudy Gobert. I don't know. I don't know how we got so. On Rudy Gobert, it's my fault. The drop cover. No, well, no, it's weird because it was his defensive versatility and and uh, top ten players and whether Rudy belongs there or not, or whether you want to put Jimmy Butler there. That's my guess. <laughs> let's. Um... <laughs> Am I wrong? Let's tune in to 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 Ben. You'll find out in a couple days. Yeah, yeah. Let's. Um, if you have a few minutes, let's do a because I do have a thought. Uh, let's do sure. a post show on Jonathan Isaac. I want to ask you something about yes. him um otherwise you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash thinking basketball sign up over there we got i can't even remember what we have over there these days uh, patreon only videos extra articles and research that come out um, we'll be doing our live q a to wrap the season uh, this weekend that's always really fun and remember to check out that athletic deal so you can read seth it's a dollar a month for six months theathletic.com slash thinking basketball. Uh, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Hope you've enjoyed this different non-solo podcast. And of course, wherever you're listening out there, hope you're having a great day.